All right, let's open with a word of prayer again for the word, and then we'll dig into the word. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. As we go to your word right now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. May man decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So, Ezra, the book of Ezra. If you're here for First and Second Chronicles, they were, it was a book that was written to all of the captives from Babylon who were coming back to Israel, coming back to specifically to Judah and to Jerusalem. And many of them had never been there. They had spent their entire life because the children of both Israel and the children of Judah were carried off captive because of their pagan idolatry. They had turned away from the Lord and the Lord used the Babylonians to bring righteous judgment upon his own people. So now they've spent 70 years in Babylon and they're given the freedom by Cyrus, the new king, that they can return home. And we saw, if you were here for chapter one, we saw that the Bible uses Cyrus's name hundreds of years before it happened, about 200 years before it happened, that Cyrus the king would then allow them to return. So they now return. They all, all have the opportunity to return. We saw from the text that numbers them, it was 49,000. It was a little under 50,000. The crazy part is there were probably at least a million of the children of Israel and Judah in Babylon, but only 50,000 came back. And that's what can happen to all of us. So they had an opportunity to go back to the place where they could worship the true and living God to help rebuild the temple, to help rebuild Jerusalem. And most of them were just happy to stay in the land of pagan idolatry. And the same thing can happen to us as believers. We can get so caught up with the things of the world and so enamored with the things of the world and so busy about the things of the world and we're missing out on what God has for us. And we can become comfortable in the world. We're to minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Amen? And we'll see that in tonight's text. So the book of Ezra starts at the end of Babylonian captivity in about 538 BC. And the nation had begun to return to the land. And they began by setting up the altar and starting sacrifices. If you'll remember last week in chapter 3, that... They, the first thing they did when they got there, the first thing they did when they got back to the land, they saw that it was in ruins. By the way, they traveled 900 miles. Most people think it would have taken them maybe up to two months to travel that far through the desert. They come back to the place. And remember, Babylon at the time was one of the most glorious kingdoms at the time. So they leave this glorious place from the outward appearance and they go back to this place that is rubble, this place that is in ruins. And so when they come back, the first thing they did, they didn't start working on the wall. They didn't start working even on their home so they'd be comfortable. The first thing they did was lay the foundation for the temple and restore worship and sacrifice. And you know what? That should always be the priority above us being comfortable, above us even being safe and protected, should be our relationship with the Lord above everything else. Amen. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So we saw that last week, that the altar was built, and they started worshiping the Lord, and they were making sacrifices unto the Lord, and then they, there was worship that started taking place, so they're all worshiping. So they're in ruins, they're in rubble, but you know what? It's better to be in ruins with the Lord than in a palace without him, Amen. And they're in the ruins and they're worshiping almighty God. But then we saw two drastic contrasts last week at the end of the text. We saw that the young men were rejoicing because for them, they had never been in a place where they could sacrifice to the Lord. They had never been in a place where they could openly worship the Lord. They had never been in a place where there was an altar of God, which is a picture of the cross of Calvary. They had never seen it before. So for them, they were rejoicing. And then we saw that the older men were weeping. And the reason they were weeping is they had been there when the temple was there. They were those who were taken away captive. And now they return to Jerusalem that was the most glorious city on the, on the planet before it got destroyed. And the temple itself was the seventh wonder of the world, if you will. The temple that King Solomon had built. And they come back and all they see is a, a rough foundation made out of you know, stones on the ground. The temple's not there. And so in the midst of it, it says in the text that the young men were praising and the old men were weeping and you almost couldn't tell the difference because all the other people were worshiping. Now, I said last week that the young men were rejoicing because they were looking forward and the old men were weeping because they were looking backward. 
And I even told you that it really had a convicting on for my wife and I. We were talking about a lot of times I go over the outline with her. And uh, I was talking to her about it. And I said, you know, babe, you know, we've been doing a lot of weeping because a lot of what we do is we look backwards because we miss our son. And again, we're never going to stop missing our son. We're never going to stop thinking about our son. I think about him every minute of every day. But we need to focus on what's ahead of us because we're going to see Mark again. He's in heaven. He's just fine. Amen? Yeah. Doing better than all of us, right? But as believers, sometimes we can get so caught up. And what did the apostle Paul say? The one thing I do, leaving that which is behind, I press onward to the upward call in Christ Jesus. It's, uh, the enemy will have you doubting or, or grieving or heartbroken about what's behind you. And that will keep you and render you ineffective for what's in front of you. And as believers, we should be purposed to take whatever time we've got left on this planet to use it for the kingdom of God and for his glory. Amen? That when he comes back, he won't find us weeping like the old men for what they're missing out on. Hope he finds us rejoicing and busy about God's work like the young men. Amen? So Jerusalem and all, the Jew, all of Judah was largely in ruins. There was a lot of work ahead for those who had left Babylon and traveled 900 miles. They have the altar. They have the sacrificial system back in place. The foundation of the temple was a priority. It had been completed. And again, more work was ahead for this roughly 50,000 people. What do they have to build? They got to build everything. They're going to have to build all the homes for them to live in. They're going to build the temple first. They're going to have to build walkways and roads. We're not going to be going to Jerusalem in, in January like we thought, but if we get there at some point, I mean, all of those roads and just ways to get around the city, that all had to be built from scratch. And so they had a long road ahead of them. But again, I would rather have a long road and a difficult task in front of me in the center of God's will than have everything easy outside of God's will. Amen? All those hundreds of thousands that stayed in Babylon, they're the ones that missed out. They might've been laying around eating bonbons, you know, as comfortable as possible in their, you know, in their hammock or whatever, right? And these guys are in ruins, but again, it's always better to be in ruins with the Lord than in comfort without him. We see that the things ahead of them are going to be the temple, the city walls, the houses, the shops, the pathways, the infrastructure. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require many faithful and diligent servants. So if you have your outline, grab it. We're going to look at chapter four. And so God's starting to do a work. They haven't even been there very long and God's starting to do a work. Here's what I want to tell you. Every time God starts to do a work, you're going to find opposition from the world and the enemy. When God is doing something great, you will find opposition from the world and the enemy. Satan's resources are limited. Who does he go after? Who does he condemn? Who does he try to attack and render ineffective? Those who are being used mildly by the Lord. I've met people before that said, I don't feel like Satan's ever bothered me. Well, maybe if you started walking with him, you'd find out. Can I get an amen to that? The reality is that when we're serving the Lord, the enemy, I, you know, I've heard people say it, but, and I mean it. I hope, I hope Satan it doesn't, he's not omnipresent. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. He's not the opposite of God. If he's the opposite of anybody, it's Michael the archangel. And he's a defeated foe that was thrown out of heaven. And he knows his future and he wants to take you there with him. Now, all that being said, he doesn't even know everybody's name. I'm convinced of it. I hope he knows mine. And the reason is, I hope that we live in such a way that, we're on Satan's most hated list because that's one person we want to hate us because I hate him. Can I get an amen to that? The one person we can hate is the enemy. So when they go back, opposition's gonna rise up. And opposition will rise both spiritually and from the world. And as believers, as we're faithfully serving the Lord, we're gonna face opposition. So I tell the message, when you follow the Lord, you will face opposition. When you take a stand for the Lord, know that the enemy is coming. Point number one, minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. The first thing we're going to see, they're going to start building the temple. And there's going to be some people that live in the outer area who are not believers. They're Samaritans. You've heard of them before. They're half-breeds, which means they were part Jewish and part Gentile. And they worshiped, they, they kind of worshiped the true and living God, but they also worshiped idols. And so they're going to come along and offer to help the children from, of, of Judah, the ones who have come, the Jews who have returned, build the temple. And we're going to see that they're going to make an offering to help them. But the reality is, we're going to see that they're referred to as adversaries. Why? Because just, they, just because they know about God doesn't necessarily mean that those are people you should be walking with and serving with. 
So as believers, we need to be careful that we minister to the world but have no fellowship with it. And you can be so desperate that you allow people who don't know the Lord to serve in ministry alongside of you, and we know that's never God's highest. As we follow the Lord, we will find there will be opposition. Our, often our enemies and opponents will present themselves as friends. Uh, by the way, Satan is an, an angel of, you know, appears as an angel of light, right? He's going to appear. He doesn't show up at your house with a pitchfork in his hand and a split tongue and a red suit, you know, with a fire breathing out of his mouth and say, come follow me. Nobody would go. So what does he do instead? He comes with a little name tag, riding a bicycle, teaching, uh, you know, a false gospel. He shows up teaching you something that's contrary to the word of God. And he you know, comes alongside you and builds a friendship with you. And that's not what we want. As believers, we need to recognize the enemy when he comes near us. Spiritual opposition requires that we use spiritual weapons, prayer, the word, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, and feet shod with the gospel. The world sees the word of God and believers as a threat, and they will try to silence them both. Do we not see that right now? The word of God, why do people... They're pro having uh, cross-dressing queens read the Bible, I mean, read books, and they don't want the Bible. Does that tell you where we're at? It shows you that people have look at the Bible as the one thing that threatens their way of life because the word of God is true. And when the word of God is spoken with boldness, it brings about conviction, amen? And people don't want to be convicted, so they want to silence the messenger. Point number two. While the enemy is a defeated foe, he is relentless. The one thing about Satan, he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the father of lies. He'll use any tactic available to keep you from using your gifts and growing in the Lord. And he will never, he's like the spiritual terminator. He's never going to give up. He's going to keep coming after you. Now, here's the good news. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And he's a defeated foe. We don't have to be afraid of him. Amen? So, we have strength and power in the Lord, and when the enemy, while the enemy is a defeated foe, know that he is relentless. Number three, the enemy will play on the fears of the world to get the world to come after you. We're going to see in tonight's text that there's going to be some people of the world, and they're going to be so afraid of Jerusalem being rebuilt and the temple worship coming back, because they know if that happens, again, they know that our God is an almighty God. They, knew, they know that when God was for them, they would wipe out any, any army in their path. And so they're going to get all the surrounding nations all whipped up and afraid. If we let them build, they're going to come back and they're going to wipe us out. If we let them build, they're not going to pay your taxes anymore. And so they're going to strike fear into the heart of the world so they will go after the people of God. Fourthly, there will be times when it looks like the enemy has won. Sometimes if you watch, if you watch the news, or as I call it, the bad news, right? You turn it on and it just looks like the enemy's won. It's just nothing but, it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And you watch it and you think the enemy is winning. It's not the accusations and judgments of men. Again, there will be many times rebellion. People are in rebellion. People are falling away. Uh, the world is running amok in open defiance against the Lord. The Bible says in the last days, lawlessness will abound. And, and there seemingly are no laws anymore. People are running out of grocery stores with $1,000 worth of groceries. People are stealing stuff, robbing people, breaking. There's just, and, and, and then we're defunding the people that stop them from, from breaking the law. By the way, you know who doesn't like police officers? Criminals. I'm pro-police because Romans 13 says God is the one who put them in positions of authority. Amen? But see, lawlessness is abounding. Men will call good evil and evil good. We're living in it. There will be times when it looks like the enemy is won. Guess what? We read the end of the book. We just finished Revelation. God wins. Amen? In the end, God wins, and praise the Lord for that. And then finally, the enemy wants to stop the work the Lord is doing in you and through you. You know what? If the enemy can't take you to hell with him, he will do everything he can to distract you and render you ineffective for the kingdom of God in the here and now. If he can't take you to hell with him, he just assume you have a saved soul and a wasted life. That you sit on the sideline, you do nothing for the kingdom of God and just wait for the Lord to come back. The most selfish thing we can do as believers is go to heaven by ourselves. As believers, we should be sharing the hope that lies within us. We got to get out of our comfort zone. People need Jesus. Amen? And we can't just walk around and keep it to ourselves. 
had someone reach out to me recently that's deconstructing, has a bunch of followers and put up a, a post about me saying, you know, well, this was my old pastor and he wasn't the, guy, the reason I left the church, but he's my old pastor. And she started saying, and she says they're on it, you know, Pastor Dave, love Jesus, but keep it to yourself because it's offensive to the rest of us. And I wrote back, I'm, I hope I offend you every single day cross of Christ is a rocket stone of offense. Amen. And guys, as believers, we've got to get out of our comfort zone. We got to quit keeping it to ourselves. It's the most selfish thing that we can do. So let's begin there. When you follow the Lord, you will face opposition. First of all, minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. So they've just had this time of rejoicing. They've just had this time of their first sacrifices in 70 years. It's their, they've come together and they're, they're worshiping almighty God and the people are rejoicing. They've laid the foundation for the temple. They're going to start building the temple. And then we come to chapter four, verse one. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, they came to Zerubbabel, the head and the heads of the fathers of the houses and said to them, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do, and we sacrifice to him since the days of Urshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, this sounds nice enough. Hey, guys, you're going to build the temple? Can we help? Now, who these people are is when the Judeans or the people of Judah were taken away captive, there were some that were left behind. And there were others who kind of just went in and settled in this ruined land because nobody was there. And we're going to see that they're going to be referred to as the Samaritans. And they're going to be people that when they, there's a, 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 a writing, an ancient writer who said that when they first settled there, there were lions in the land that were killing people. And they thought it was because they weren't worshiping the God who was there before. So they started worshiping Yahweh, but not really. Jehovah, not really though. They didn't really know what they were doing. And so they were kind of, you know, Samaritan. When you think of Samaritan, who do you think of? Samaritan woman, what's the other one? Good Samaritan. And the Jews could not stand the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds because they were part Jewish faith and part Gentile. And they looked at them worse than Gentiles. They're like, you're somebody that's got a Jewish background who's also Gentile. You're anathema. They would walk all the way around Samaria, wouldn't step on the ground in Samaria in case they would be defiled. That's why it blew them away when Jesus walked right into Samaria and had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. Amen. But the Samaritans at this point, they're worshiping false gods. They don't know the true and living God. Would have been easy to say, we can use all the help we can get. We got a huge task in front of us. We got to build an entire city. We got to get the temple done. Then we got to start working on the walls. We got to build all the houses. Hey man, thanks for the help. Well, notice one of the words that's there in the first verse. It uses the word adversaries. They were adversaries of Judah, enemies, opponents, who will present themselves as friends. So here's the lesson number one. Whenever you're doing something for the Lord, you will face opposition. Often that opposition will appear as an angel of light. They will, may appear as somebody that wants to help you when all they really want to do is sabotage what you're doing, to draw you away from the things of God and get you to participate in the things of the world. As we try to follow the Lord, as we seek to follow him, we will find there will be opposition. And the most dangerous enemy we face is a spiritual one. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual opposition requires that we have spiritual weapons. Again, things like prayer, the word, the helmet of, you know, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, right? We need all of those things to stand firmly before the Lord, the shield of faith. And so it's a spiritual battle that we fight, but also sometimes it comes from the world. We may expect it from non-believers, but we're surprised to find Christians who will decide to, to be an enemy for the same reason. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those that spitefully use and persecute you. How many of you guys find that to be hard? People persecute you. People mock you. People say bad things about you. And the Lord says to pray for them. And you know what? We need to be praying for them. 
but it doesn't mean we should have fellowship with them. The real question is, what does it mean to love your enemy? It doesn't mean you always give them what they want or give in to them. We minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. So they recognized that even though they offered help, they were spiritually strong enough to recognize that's a bad thing. We don't want help from the world. We want to be faithful to the Lord. We don't want to succumb to what the world wants to give us. We know this won't end well. They worship idols. They don't worship the true and living God, at least not the right way. We want no part of these guys. Then it said there in verse two, it says, we seek your God as you do. Well, the adversaries are pagan people that were brought into the land of Israel when the Assyrians conquered them in 722 BC. And the way the Assyrians formed their empire was to conquer one nation, then move a population from another location to replace them with different conquered people so there would be no desire to restore that old nation they had conquered. And eventually these pagan peoples began to intermarry with the few Israelites that were left behind and that began the race of the Samaritans. That's where they came from. So some of the, you know, after they, you know, destroyed the city, there were still some Jewish people that stayed behind. Samaritans were brought in by this, uh, the other group was brought in by the, by the uh, Assyrians and then they intermarried and now we have the Samaritans. They are adversaries in the New Testament. The Samaritans in the New Testament at the same time, again, need the Lord. So God's still going to, has a, has a plan to minister to them. Eventually these pagan peoples began to intermarry and it's these, praise God that they had discernment to recognize getting help from them is a bad idea. And sometimes, you know, I thought about this way. When you plant a church, which I've done a few times and I've been a part of other church plants, Anybody who shows up is exciting. And anybody that wants to help, it's, it's tempting to just let them help. But you don't want to do that. You don't want to just put warm bodies in places. You want people who are called, people who love the Lord, people who God is the priority and the passion of their life. And that's exactly what's taking place here. Do they want people that, that worship the true and living God, but not in the right way, but also worship pagan idols? No. And so they're going to make a stand against it. 500 years later, the Samaritans continued as people in New Testament times. And because they had historical connection to the people of Israel, their faith was a combination, again, of rituals from the law of Moses and also various superstitions at the same time. And most Jews in Jesus' time despised the Samaritans, often even more than the Gentiles. So the context is essential to understanding the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's why when he, when he talks about a good Samaritan, all the Jews just panic. Which one was his neighbor? They don't even want to say it because they hate the Samaritan so much. So this is where that reputation came from. There were ungodly people at that time and they used wisdom to recognize we don't want to just do what God wants. We want to do it God's way. Amen? Amen. We want to honor the Lord and do what God wants us to do, but do it in his way. In 2 Kings 17, 33, in case you think I'm being too rough on the Samaritans, it says, they feared the Lord, yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among which they were carried away. The land where they were before they were carried into Jerusalem, they still worshiped those false gods. And again, they might've looked good on the outside. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. You don't recognize someone's faith by just how they dress or how they look. Certainly not. It's by their heart. So, the Jews of Jesus' day saw the Samaritans as, gent as Gentile dogs, and again, they avoided them at all costs. And to the Samaritans, Yahweh was one of many powerful gods. If Jesus is one of many powerful gods, you are not a Christian. Amen? Amen? If he's one of many ways to heaven, like Cyrus, he was covering all his bases. Yeah, go back and build that temple, but he also worshiped all the other false gods. He's like, well, I'm, I'm worshiping 20 gods. One of them's got to be the right one. It doesn't work that way. When you worship additional gods, you're, you're, you know, false gods, you're rejecting the true and living God. Amen? So they hear the celebration and they're a little worried. They've been living amongst the rubble. Maybe they got little shacks here and there. So they come down to see what's going on. They're like, oh man, this, this could not be good. They're worshiping. Oh man, you know what? These are the people that were here before. Uh, they could get after it. Let's go help them. That's a good idea. Let's come alongside them and praise the Lord for wisdom and for the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says in verse three. But Zerubbabel, by the way, we, I didn't mention this, Zerubbabel is there on the first wave and then Ezra will be there 60 years later and he will be the one that comes in the second wave. So right now Zerubbabel is the leader 
amongst all the Jews who have returned. And it says in verse 3, but with Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house of our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, what's amazing is the king of Persia sent them home and also sent them with the resources they needed to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city, at least some of the resources they would need. And they were actually told to go. Now, most people stayed. The ones who have gone are not going to compromise. They would say, we don't need your help. We don't want your help. We're going to do this according to the word of God. You may do nothing with us to build the house of God. With one voice, they refused the help of the Samaritans. And again, they knew that this was not a good idea. It was the leading of, the, of, of Almighty God upon their hearts. It was important to step out a, a step of faith to refuse this help when they so desperately needed it. Many people of faith have fallen into this blunder associating themselves with those who do not share their faith. I get asked all the time to come pray at an interfaith prayer meeting, and I say, absolutely not. And I have people say, well, you should go. No. If they're praying to the moon God and they're praying to Buddha over here and they're praying to Muhammad over here and they're praying to Hindu gods over here, I'm not going to be part of that mess. I don't want anything to do with it. Now, if a bunch of interfaith people want me to come and do a Bible study, I'll be the first one there. Amen? But we don't, it's tainting who the true living God is. They're putting it on the same level as worshiping Jesus. Amen? This happened in Santa Cruz one time. I got ambushed because I had a pretty large church there and they invited me to come. And the first two people who spoke, who prayed were Wiccans. It's a witch. They were praying to the universe and the trees and the life in the trees and I, and I invited my church. I had like 300 people from my church over this prayer thing, and my head's about to explode. I'm, and I go, well, you've got to be kidding me. So I got up. That's why I never got invited back. I said, so what we just heard was demonic, ungodly. That was not prayer. And now we're going to have to fix all of that nonsense that you just heard. Because there's one true and living God. Amen? And people were you know, upset, but that's okay. I never got invited back. That's all right. I wouldn't have gone anyway. But the point is, they understood you're either worst person of the true and living God or you're not. And they were to avoid compromise. Again, you might look at this and think that this innocent type of request that the Samaritans were making, yet these people had twisted ideas about who God was and how he was to be worshiped. And Zerubbabel and Yeshua wanted to keep the worship pure. It's good to be drawing unsafe people to church. It's what we're called to do. But at the same time, we need to be careful that the core of the foundation of what this place is all about is Jesus. We don't compromise with worldly ideas. Amen? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion ha has light with darkness. Verse 4, then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they were told no, and how did they respond? Let me read it to you again. These are the Samaritans. No, you can't help us. Okay, we can't help you. So they tried to discourage them. Oh, you won't let us work alongside you. We're going to do everything we can to discourage you. We're going to hire people to come against you. They hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. People of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. The response to the refusal of their partnership with the Jews shows their real evil intent. Sometimes people, you want to come to the Lord if they can come their own way, but when they're told they have to come the Lord's way, you often find out what's really in their heart. They could not attack the work from, within, from inside. They're going to mock them from the outside. They can't get inside and destroy the work here. They'll mock you from the outside. The Bible tells us that many people appear like sheep, but they're sheep's in wolf's clothing. People come into your church and try to draw people away to teach them a false gospel. And we need to be, you know, pastors and all of us who are spiritually mature need to recognize people who are doing that and, and you know, cast them out. Amen? So they're going to try to discourage the workers and trouble the builders, lobbying against them with these hired counselors with King Cyrus. Go tell Cyrus that they're going to be a danger, so they'll stop. See, these guys that said they wanted to help never wanted to help, and we find out because immediately they try to discourage and weaken 
the hands of those who have such a large task in front of them. It's kind of like Job's friends. Some friends you don't want. Remember Job's friends? Must have been something you did. I'm paraphrasing. Oh, you're, that's your fault. What did you do? Dude, Lord tearing you up, man. He's mad. And you know, you're like, dude, I need friends like this. And so we want people that will come alongside us, that will hold up our hands. A three-chord strand is not easily broken. Amen. People that will work with us. And what you see from the world is people will try and tear you down. Now, I will admit that I'm at a place in my life that I love when people try to tear Christianity down with me. I love it. Bring it. You know why? We don't take it personal. Don't defend yourself. God's word will defend itself. Almighty God is greater than any foe that we will face. Just know what you believe and why you believe it and say it with boldness and leave it in God's hands because God's word doesn't return void. Amen? And we don't have to be afraid of the world. A lot of oh, well, somebody came and I didn't know what to say. Well, you didn't know what to say because you're not reading your Bible enough. Amen? Read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Amen? So all the days of Cyrus, even unto the reign of Darius, the Samaritan resistance to the work of rebuilding the temple would extend all the way into the days of Nehemiah. Now, this chapter is kind of unique. Chapter 4 to 23, he kind of steps aside a little bit, and he's going to give us like the overview of what's going to take place through the rest of the book. From verse 4 to verse 23, he's going to talk about all these kingdoms that are going to come. And as they come and all, what's going to happen over all of these years, it's going to expand all the time of Daniel and Babylon. It's going to go into the king that marries Esther. I said this last week that the last three real history books of the Old Testament are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra and Nehemiah speak of the people that went back to Jerusalem. Esther gives us a glimpse into those who stayed in Persia, and she becomes the queen. After that, what we see are all the prophets. All these prophets, Jeremiah and Haggai and Malachi, they all lived during those times. So we're getting the history lesson in the next three books, and then we're going to get all the prophetic exhortations that take place during those times to those people. So verse 4 to 23, we're going to see again this overview of the opposition that Jews faced from building the temple all the way to the completion of building the walls. Opposition is noted in the rest of this chapter from the time of Cyrus, which is 559 to 530 um, BC, all the way to Artaxerxes, which ends at 424 BC. So over a hundred years, we're going to see just a kind of a glimpse of it in these next 19 verses. And then we'll see it more in depth as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah. The enemy knows the significance of Jerusalem and the temple and its sacrifice and its feast, and they're going to do all they can to prevent the completion of the temple and the city itself. Jerusalem is, is Jerusalem still under attack today? They're going to be surrounded by their enemies the whole time they're rebuilding the city, and there's nothing new under the sun. It's still taking place today. When we were in Santa Cruz, we went several times because we were meeting in a gym for nine years and we filled that thing up and, and I mean, and we only had, we didn't have enough classrooms. And so we kept looking to buy a building in Santa Cruz. And every time we went before the, uh, you know, the, whatever you call that board who decides what you can build, we'd go before them and they would shut us down every time. And we'd, we'd pay for blueprints. We'd pay, we did all this stuff. We'd go find a place. We had a real estate agent. We'd figure out how we could get the sanctuary built and all that stuff. And then we'd go to them and they'd go, oh no. And we would always ask them, well, so what, what areas can we be in? They would tell us. And then we would go in front of them and they would just shut us down. So after like six or seven times doing this over like a three-year period, one of the guys finally pulled me aside and said, Pastor Dave, we are never going to give you a building. You can't repeat it, but we are never going to give you a building. Never. We don't want any churches here. No wonder Santa Cruz is so weird. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> you know, they, they, they have bumper stickers that keep Santa Cruz weird. I can, I can talk about my people. I grew up there. But Santa Cruz means Holy Cross, but really it's a tofu, tie-dye, new age, lesbian, capital United States. And they need Jesus so desperately. The headquarters of the church of Satan is there. They don't want any churches there. Then we wonder why that place is such a mess. Amen? We end up going five miles away into the city of Scotts Valley that was right down the road. And they were like, you can have any building you want. You know, they wanted us there. They're like, oh, you mean 1,200 people are going to drive in from Santa Cruz to Scotts Valley and eat it? Or, oh yeah, come on, let's go. And so God put us there instead. But the point is that they're going to face opposition from the world. 
When you're doing things for God, you will face opposition from the world. The enemy will do all he can to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. And guys, we just need to trust that God is greater than our opposition. Amen? The point number one, minister to the world, have no fellowship with it. These guys offered help, but they recognized they were not from the Lord because they had the, you know, the leading of Almighty God. They were able to recognize we want no partnership with them. Point number two, while the enemy is a defeated foe, he is relentless. Look at verse six. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Ahasuerus is also Xerxes. Who married Xerxes? Who knows? Esther. So we're going all the way from Cyrus. So Cyrus, then Cambys, then Smerdis, then Darius, then Xerxes. So we skipped up five kings ahead. So he's giving them kind of an overview of what's going to take place. And he's telling us right here that during his time, they were writing accusations against the inhabitants in Jerusalem. Now, by the time he is king, the temple's already been built and it's been up for 50 years. The walls haven't been built yet. The city's not completed. And we fast forward some hundred years and they're still making accusations against the Jews and those who inhabit Jerusalem. And guys, we fast forward 2,500 more years and they're still doing it. Amen? God... Israel's God's people. You can disagree with me all you want. You're wrong. Amen? God says he blesses those who bless Israel and curses those who curse Israel. Do they have blinders over their eyes right now, largely? What's the answer? But we teach a Jewish book about a Jewish Savior written by Jewish people. Can I get an amen to that? And praise God for the Jewish people. And God, and I believe during the Great Tribulation, we're going to see millions and millions of Jews get saved. And so God's not done with them yet. And so as believers, we are pro-Israel. So being mentioned here simply marks the passage of about 60 years of time of Xerxes and the ongoing opposition of the enemy that even though all this time is gone by, they are still going after them. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to thwart God's plan and God's will. It says there in verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, uh, also Bislam, Merthada, Tabel, and the rest of the companions wrote that Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into Aramaic language. What's really crazy in this book from chapter 4, verse 8, all the way to chapter 6, verse 18, all of a sudden the original manuscript goes from Hebrew to Aramaic. And the reason is that it was written largely to be understood by the world. So they're going to more than likely translate it into Aramaic. That's how it's written, this part of it. And the, this, this is letters being written about the Jews, attacking the Jews, telling them, warning everybody else about them. You need to shut them down because they rebuild their, their temple. If they rebuild their city. We're all in trouble. And so you're going to see the world coming together against them. There is nothing new under the sun. Amen. You know that Israel's like the size of New Jersey? And everybody in the world is focused on Israel. And then people say, there's no God. Why does everybody focus on Israel? Because there is a God and they are his chosen people. Amen? I'm just, I'm baffled when people, they just don't get spiritually blind. Verse eight, Rehum the commander and Shemsai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. So after Xerxes was Artaxerxes. So he's the captain. So now about 120 years have gone by and they're going to write a letter to him. And at this point, the temple's been built, but the walls have not yet been built. Nehemiah's coming. They're not done yet. So the walls aren't done. The whole city's not done. And they're going to write a letter to warn the king to keep them from finishing what they're called to do. Now, I know this might seem like a stretch to you, but when COVID hit, why was Home Depot allowed to be open, but not the churches? Amen? Why, why, you know, the, the uh, casinos were open, but not the churches. Strip clubs were open, but not the churches. CBD places were open, but not the churches. I was half joking one time. I said, so we put a roulette wheel in the corner. Can we have church? Because 
They were open. Why is that? Because the world that doesn't know God views the church as something that is dangerous to their existence and their ungodly way of life. They would shut us all down if they could. And we're hearing more and more. That they're under- By the way, who, who heard Mike Johnson's speech? He's the new, what's his title? Speaker of the House. I, dude, this guy's my best friend. I love this guy. I heard his speech. I was like, man, can we make him president right now? He talked about the Lord, talked about a God we trust, talked about how our, our nation was founded and was not shy about it and even had some of the Democrats clapping. How about that? But he said, the reason God has blessed America because America blesses God because it's in God that we trust, because we follow him. Guys, we need more people to stand up like that and quit worrying about what the world has to say. Amen? Amen. And so they're going to write this letter to cap on the Jewish people to keep, hey, don't let them finish that building. They finish that building, you're going to have a problem. Well, the temple's there, but they don't have any walls yet. Let's keep them from building the walls. Let's keep them from building the city. Notice what they say in the, so they, they write this letter and it says, verse, down to verse uh, 10, and the rest of the nations who were great and noble, on snapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river and so forth. So the enemy, all these years later, are still trying to get the Jews to stop building. What is the thing that would make the Muslims go crazy more than anything in the world? If they rebuilt the temple on the Temple Mount. And guess what? It's coming. Amen? Amen? Amen. I believe we'll be in heaven when it happens, but it's coming. So all these representatives of all these different nations, including Babylon and Persia, they write this letter. And what is this letter going to say? This group decided to compose a letter to the king of Persia with false accusations against the remnant that had returned to build Jerusalem. The complaint was not from a single isolated group, but from various judges and officials from various parts of the Persian empire and people who had been deported to Samaria under the Assyrian king, Osnapper, also known as Ashpenal, and they are going to make false accusations against God's people. Anybody ever made false accusations against you because of your faith? It happens. Point number three, the enemy will play on the fears of the world to get the world to come after you. Now watch this letter. Here's the letter that are writing this to the king, the King Artaxerxes, and they're going to try to get him to panic and be afraid and put a stop to the Jews' rebuilding Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. This is a copy of the letter they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. The river is the river Euphrates. Uh, When Jerusalem was ruling and reigning, they literally ruled and reigned everything past the Euphrates, and they had territories that were paying taxes to them. And they're going to play on that to get Artaxerxes to panic that he's going to lose part of his kingdom. He's going to lose part of the wealth that he gets in taxes paid from the Jews once they become their own nation. Verse 12, let it be known to the king that the Jews who have come up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They're building a rebellious and evil city, are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. So how did they define this city? What do they call it? rebellious and evil. This letter to the king indicates that the work that they're complaining about is not a work of rebuilding the temple. The resistance was against the building of the city and its walls. And by the reign of Artaxerxes, as I said, the temple was already there. The focus on the letter is to paint the Jews as evil and rebellious people. And if they completed the building to the city and fortified its walls that the Jewish and surrounding territories, which Jerusalem would control, would no longer pay their taxes and tribute, would dishonor the king and could become a threat to his kingdom. Have you ever noticed that people will say things about Christians that they won't say about any other group? They will rip Christianity. They'll say that we're bigots, we're homophobes, we're transphobes, or every kind of phobe you can be. And they, and they say it's because you guys don't, if you just loved everybody... You know, and love is not encouraging you to continue in your sin on a road to destruction. That's not love. What love is, is loving somebody enough to tell them the truth, to help them not go down that road of destruction so they can repent and come to know the true and living God. Amen? Amen. So they call them evil, and they're setting this in Artaxerxes' mind. And one thing about kings in those days, all of them 
do we see kings getting killed all the time? What's the answer? And a lot of times it's from their own kids or their brother, right? And they will all want, so a king wants to feel confident that everybody around him is on his side. And so they're going to play to his weak spot. By the way, they're building that place. Those guys are pretty rough. Better watch out. You're going to have a problem. Look at verse 13. Let it be known to the king that if the city is built and the walls are completed, they will not pay tax or tribute or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. It's all a bunch of nonsense. What are they saying? Oh, because king, because you help us out so much, we just want to make sure that you're not in trouble. No, they're scared to death of what will happen if God's people are in God's land serving the true and living God. In the past, if we've been going through the Old Testament, could anybody defeat God's people when they were obeying God? What's the answer? Nobody. I don't care how big your army is. Ask Gideon. I don't care how big your army is. I don't care how great you think you are. All these great armies, all of Pharaoh's people did a dead man float. Amen. I mean, they wiped every army out. The Egyptians got wiped out. I mean, they won the battles. Why? If God is for us, who can be against us? The only time God's people lost is when God's people were in rebellion. Amen. And so he's going to strike fear into Artaxerxes and Again, they felt it was their patriotic duty to tell the king what was happening so the king could search the records of, of what Jerusalem had done in the past, and they're going to hopefully see them as evil and somebody that he turns against. The suggestion is that once the city is completed, they will revolt, they'll stop paying taxes, and they recalled prior actions of uh, the pre-exiled Jerusalem that by Artaxerxes' reign was almost 200 years earlier when they had rebelled against both the Assyrians and the Babylons. Had they stopped paying taxes to the Assyrians and the Babylons? What's the answer? They did. You know why? The Assyrians and the Babylons wanted to wipe them off the face of the earth. Are we going to pay taxes to Hamas? No. Can I get an amen to that? Biden might, but we, we're not going to do that, Right. What are we going to do? We're going to make a stand for the Lord. We're going to make a stand for the things of God. And we're not going to do that. Amen. But here they are saying, hey, bro, you better, if you let them rebuild that place, you're going to lose all your taxes. You're going to, and it's, and, and it's only going to get worse. Their fall did not come because they stood against the Syrian Babylon. They're going to try to say that the reason they fell is because they were not paying taxes and they were evil. No, they fell because they were dishonoring God and they were worshiping false idols. God's the one who brought them down. Not, even though I may have used Babylon, it wasn't Babylon, it was God. Amen? Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper. Here's what they're saying. They're playing to the king's ego and position of power. Because we received so much support from you, we're aligned with you. We would hate to see you dishonored in this way, playing on the king's ego and his lust for power and his pocketbook and their view of Israel's past destruction to try and get what they want. They shape their words to sound supportive of the king. It's not the accusations and judgments of men that we need to fear, but the righteous judgment of God. They're going to be accused by men of being things that they're not. They're going to be lied about. And you know what they need to know? What we need to know. When somebody lies about you, or somebody says things about you, again, that aren't true, or attacks your character, or is trying to ruin your reputation, here's the three things you should do. Pray for them. Amen? Live a holy and set-apart life that is contrary to what they say how you live. Amen? I mean, be faithful to do those two things, right? And then, uh, you know, along with that as well is recognize that even in the greatest trials, God will use it for his glory if you will but let him. Amen? Everybody in the Bible used mightily suffered greatly. And so when someone's making accusations against you and someone's attacking you, we need to pray for them. We need to live a holy and a set-apart life. And we need to recognize that God can use even this for his glory if we will but let him. Amen? Instead of, you know, getting in a place where we want to stand up for ourselves. And by the way, we can defend ourselves, but we should never defend ourselves. We should defend what we believe in. We defend Christianity, not Dave. Amen? So when someone attacks me, well, whatever. Yeah, you're right. I'm a sinner. You're right. What about Christianity? When someone says, well, you know, you're a pastor. You got, yeah, you're right. Pastor, sometimes not great. But where are you at with Jesus? Because that's what matters. Amen? Get the ball to Jesus. You've heard me say that, right? 
If I'm playing basketball and Michael Jordan's on my team, I'm there. I'm, I'm, get to, you know, as soon as I can, get it to Michael, right? So when it comes to sharing your faith, get the ball to Jesus, amen? Get them to the Lord. Let them hear about him. And so what are they doing? They're trying to tear them down. They're attacking their character. They're calling them evil. It's good to know that God's in control even when the enemy's a liar, amen? Look at verse 15. Then it says that they search may be in the book of records of your fathers, you will find in the book of records and know that the city is rebellious and harmful to kings and princes, that they have incited sedition within the city in former times of which cause the city was destroyed. Here's what he's saying is, in the past, what they did is they made people that were part of, of another nation be a part of their nation, and they denied paying taxes and being associated anymore, and that's why they were destroyed. Well, yes, you're right. The Jews stood on their own. And many, and look throughout Second Chronicles, many times they were standing on their own and they wouldn't pay the taxes because these were people that were godless pagan worshipers and they were going to fight against them rather than succumb to them. But at the same time, we're going to see that, again, the enemy is going to go after them and say, look, that's why they failed because they were so evil. No, they, well, in a sense they were, but God was the one who brought the judgment. So the Jews had been independent people. They had rebelled against the Assyrians in 701 BC and against the Babylonians in 600. And this is true. So this was 200 years later. And the Assyrians were known for destroying cities. And so were the Babylonians. And they were both idol worshiping nations. And Jerusalem had times uh, when they would not bow to their enemies. But these are not the same people. And it's a different time. Cyrus had sent them there and given them money. Do you think they'd pay him taxes? What do you think? Yes. I think when they're there and they're building the city and he's giving them money and they needed to pay him taxes, they'd pay him. I think they'll pay taxes as long as they're not paying taxes if somebody wants to destroy them. And so now we're going to turn to where we're going to see King Artaxerxes is being influenced by men. It says, verse 16, we inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So here's what they're warning him. If you let this city be built from the Euphrates on... Jerusalem will be in charge. Judea will be in charge. You will lose a huge portion of your kingdom if you let that city be built. And you know, as believers and unbelievers, when I talk to unbelievers about the Lord, often what they'll say, well, I would give my life to Jesus, but I don't want to let go of this. Yeah, but I, I like sleeping with my girlfriend. I like partying on the weekends. I like gambling, whatever, Right? And they'll say, and I'll say, so you're willing to go to hell for that? Really? Like, wow, bro, you ain't got to get like that up on my, well, well yeah, I, I, I want to serve God. I, I, I think I might almost be, but I just love getting drunk on the weekends and I can't do that anymore. Yeah, guess what? When we give our lives to Jesus, he never takes away anything good. He only takes away what's bad and replaces it with something better. Can I get an amen to that? Be not drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's what's happening is they're being told if you let him build it, Artaxerxes, now, some kings might see through this, but some kings, most kings, they panic because they're men of the world and they're afraid of losing their grip on even one square yard of their kingdom. And so they're hitting him right where we, they know is his soft spot. They're calling attention to their past. They argue that allowing them to continue building would make it so the king would have no dominion. You know, Satan is the accuser of the brethren and he loves to talk about your past. Because one of the things he's saying to them is, go check your records 200 years ago and see if they paid taxes back then. Well, no, they didn't, but it was different circumstances. It's because they, the Assyrians were their enemies. They were mounted up on the northern part of their kingdom, ready to come in and slaughter them. You're not going to pay taxes to them. You're not going to pay for ISIS's weapons. Oh, hello. So, Point number four here. There will be times when it looks like the enemy has won. Look at verse 17. So the king sent an answer. So the king gets the letter and he reads it. And now he's going to respond. Is he going to be impacted by this letter filled with a lot of things that aren't true? They're speaking to him the way that they know a king will respond. And here's what they say. So the king answered to Rahim, the commander, to Shumshai, the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, to the remainder beyond the river, peace and so, so forth. I love it. it says peace and so forth. Peace and you know what I'm saying. That's what he says there, peace and you know, whatever else. The letter which you sent to us 
has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. They have been also mighty kings over Jerusalem who've ruled over the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now what you do not, do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? So Jerusalem had revolted against the pagan kings. It was in the history when he looked it up. The letters stirred him up to run and look at their past history. And it was in the past under difficult, different circumstances. In the end, though, a God-fearing nation will at some point revolt against pagan idolatrous nations. Amen? So verse 20 there, and it says, there have been mighty kings. Who are some mighty kings that were in Jerusalem? King David, King Solomon, they had mighty armies. They won battles. They were honoring the Lord. God blessed them because they were being faithful. So they look back and say, well, they had some mighty kings. No, well, we had mighty kings, but what we really have is a mighty God. Amen. And whether David or Solomon or, or someone else is on the throne, our God is God. And the only way they lose battles is if they're in rebellion against the true and living God. And I don't care how great your army is. We don't fear you. We fear God. Amen. And so here's, here they are. And he's writing back on, yeah, they had great kings. That made him scared. They got this guy named David I read about, and this guy named Solomon I read about. And you know what? Man, they were, they were collecting taxes. Instead of paying taxes to us, they were collecting taxes that we collect now. And if we let them rebuild the building, they're going to take our stuff. The world we live in today has, in some way, the same fear about believers. You know, if Christians were in charge, then they would ban things that, that we love. And they would, they would talk about Jesus all the time. And, you know, when they would go back to having a, a, fam, a, a family unit that honors the Lord and things like that, and the world doesn't want it. And so they, they want to silence Christians because they don't want to change their lifestyle or have it impacted. So then he tells them after verse 20 there, he says, now I command you to make these men see. So here's what he says. Okay, you're right. Go make them stop. Go make them stop. And they're going to mount up what military they have, they're going to run down to Jerusalem and they're going to tell them to stop or they're going to be put to death. And guess what? When you're doing things for the Lord, the enemy will do anything he can to make you stop, to make you give up, to make you quit, to make you feel overwhelmed, to make you feel like, you know what? It's just not worth it. You know, it's interesting, Pastor Chuck, whenever we'd go to the senior pastor's conference, he would always talk about this, especially, and, when, and you know, Calvary Chapel is built basically on church planters. So people go out and plant churches. You know, in about a 20-year period of time, I think about three, almost 3,000 Calvary Chapels were planted. It was crazy, right? And so I'm, I'm a church planter by heart. I love church planting. But most people after the first year want to quit because they go and it's harder than they thought and they don't get the support that they want. So they go to Pastor Chuck at the conference and go, yeah, I've been, in, I've been in Minneapolis for a year. We got like eight people coming and even those people don't come and I don't have a worship leader and we can't afford our rent anymore. I want to quit. Chuck would always say the same thing. Stay one more year. Come to, stay one more year. Got to come back after two years. Well, got 22. Well, church doubled in size. Praise the Lord. Stay another year. <laughs> Amen. Stay another year. Stay another year. Stay another year until he stops complaining about it. Amen. But the point is, that when you're serving the Lord, the enemy will do everything he can to make you just be ready to quit. It's just too much. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I go to work all day. I come home. I'm tired. I don't want to prepare to teach the Bible. I, you know, I don't want to have people over my house. I don't want to go to the study on Saturday morning. It's my only day off. You know, all this mentality and things that get us to want to quit. And you know, that is the lie of the enemy. Amen? Amen. We want to obey the Lord. And so... He lets him know, go make him stop. And then he tells him, verse 22, take her, he, you do it now. Now, go make him stop right now. As soon as Artaxerxes heard it, he wanted him to stop immediately. And so we see that this, these people are going to come against him. Verse 23, now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim, Shumshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up and hasted Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made 
them cease. The letter was sent to Artaxerxes. It worked. It made the people stop building the city of Jerusalem. And this ends Ezra's little historical edition of what's going to take place over the next you know, many years, simply trying to show the overall opposition that the Jews had in rebuilding anything. This is, he's saying, look, this is what's going to happen. As all these kings come and go, everybody's going to try to stop us from building the nation that God's told us to build. And as believers, as we take a stand for the Lord, as we use the gifts God's given us, just know that the enemy will always try to discourage you. Don't be surprised when it happens. Amen? Amen. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're, you're teaching something, you're doing something, you're serving in a ministry, and you get discouraged. And maybe you don't have as much help as you would have hoped. Forget about the help. Do it for the Lord. Amen? Amen. And if we're doing it for the Lord, people won't disappoint you. And so he tells them to shut it down. Then verse 24 says, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued till the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So it was stopped from five uh, for 15 years. So they, they were, all they had built was the temple. The walls were not up yet. The rest of the city was not completed. In this case, the temple's not even being built. Going backward when we get to 24. But what's happened is they're being told to stop. Stop honoring the Lord. Stop doing what God, God has called you to do. Stop. And you know what? One of the biggest stumbling blocks for young believers serving the Lord is Christian parents. Here's what I mean. If you go home, if your 18 year old comes home tomorrow and says, Hey, God's called me to go to China for two years to serve on the mission field. What are the parents going to say? <laughs> right? I think we can give money for someone else to go. You can be their pen pal. It'll be great. Right? Often when you see people like going a direction that isn't what the world looks for as success, the parents panic and go, no, guys, if my kids are digging ditches and love Jesus, I'm going to be the happiest man on the planet. And if they're a rocket scientist and they don't know the Lord, my heart's going to be broken. Amen? Let's be sold out for Jesus. Let's do something radical for the Lord and the things of God. Amen? Instead of sitting on the sideline waiting for someone else to do it. The enemy wants to stop building. He will try to confuse you through compromise, and he will try to outright attack you to get you to give up, to feel overwhelmed, to feel like you're not called, to feel like you can't do it. You know when God can use you when you feel like you can't do it? You know why? Because God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. The ones I'm worried about are the ones that show up at church and go, well, God just blessed you. I just showed up here, you know? And I'm the most amazingly gifted whatever you've ever heard of in your life. And you're so incredibly blessed that I've showed up. Dude, please go find another church. Amen? When somebody's humble, they don't feel like they can do it. And it's overwhelming. And then you watch them step out in faith. And then the Lord shows up. And then the Lord gets all the credit. Amen? Because he can use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And those are the people that God uses. Notice it says, until the second year of the reign of Darius. Uh, what do we remember about Darius? What is, what is one of the things Darius is known for? Daniel. See, it's all fun. Darius is the one who gets caught up by his wise men saying, oh, Darius, we'll pray only unto you. And he said, and and you, but we need you to mark it with your signet ring. So if anybody else prays to anyone else, they get thrown in the lion's den. And Daniel was number two man, and he loved Daniel, but he got caught up in his own, you know, thinking he's a God program. And he, and he did it with his signet ring, and they threw, Dari they threw Daniel in the lion's den. We'll be there in five weeks. They threw Daniel in the lion's den, and King Darius is in the palace, tearing the palace down because he got duped by all his wise men who hated Daniel because Daniel always had an answer and they never had any because they were a bunch of astrologers and one hundred psychic and Daniel knew the true and living God. So he always had the answers. They never did. They hated him. So they outlawed prayer knowing you can't get Daniel unless you outlaw something to do with God. They outlawed prayer. They throw him in the lion's den. Darius is whipped up all night, tearing everything down, can't sleep. And Daniel's in the lion's den napping because it's better to be in the lion's den with the Lord than in the palace without him. Amen? And that's Darius. And then Darius runs to this, oh, Daniel, did your God deliver you? Right? And he said, and he hears his voice. And then they throw all the dudes who 
made him sign the thing about no prayer. And in case you thought the lions were full, they all got, they all got swallowed up before they hit the ground. Guys, King Darius. So I just love how Ezra is lining up with Daniel. It's lining up with the books we just came out of in 2 Chronicles, and it's lining up with what's going on in the world today. Amen? So it looks like the enemy wins here. Why? Because they stopped building the city. But you'll notice they only delayed the work. And do you know that God's timing is always perfect? So when you're disappointed that things don't come as fast as you would hope, just trust and know that you be faithful to the Lord. You step out in faith. If it doesn't happen in the time that you want it to, trust the Lord and just keep being faithful right where you are until the Lord moves you to the next place. Amen? So in closing, when you follow the Lord, you'll face opposition. Minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. Someone to come alongside and help you. What's most important, there's 15 qualifications for a pastor in the Bible. You've heard me say this. One speaks of gifting, 14 speak of character. We get enamored with gifting. We need to be enamored with character. Amen? So we need people of godly character above all else, even more than gifting. While the enemy is a defeated foe, he's relentless. He keeps coming after them. He's, he's not giving up. He wants to try to shut them down. Uh, you know, as we look at that timeline of 100 years, they never stop trying to, you know, to shut the Jews down, to keep the city from being built. They won't let go. Number three, the enemy will play on the fears of the world to get the world to come after you. He got Artaxerxes panicking that something bad was going to happen. If I don't shut them down, they're going to they're take over that entire part of my kingdom. And then they're going to come after me with their great army like King David did. And they'll probably wipe me out. So they play on the fears of the world to get them to come after you. There will be times when it looks like the enemy is won. Again, there are times in all of our lives, no doubt, where we've been in a place where like, wow, this is not what I anticipated. I want to tell you right now, my life is nothing like I thought it was going to be. How many of you guys, your life is exactly what you expected? <laughs> Said nobody in the room, amen? We have an idea of what we want. We have an idea of how we think our life's going to be. And then you find out it's not your way, it's God's way, and that's all that matters. And then finally, the enemy wants to stop the work the Lord is doing in you and through you. You know, he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We are all works in progress, Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for these exhortations that we've read tonight. And Lord, may we learn from the examples we've seen tonight that, yes, the world will come after us if we stand for you. We will face opposition, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And even in times when it seems like the enemy is won and our timeline seems to be delayed. We're thankful, Lord, that your timing is perfect. Your ways are perfect. And we know, Lord, in the end, you win. To you and you alone be all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor, and all God's people said... Amen.